The writer, J.D. Salinger, well known for his novel, The Catcher in the Rye, has one of his characters in his book, Franny and Zoe, make a remark that I think captures a longing that many people have in our day. The character said, I'm sick of just liking people. I wish I could meet somebody I could respect. I'm sick of just liking people. I wish I could meet somebody I could respect. There's indeed a difference, isn't there, between a person that we like and a person we respect. We may not necessarily even like someone that we respect. And conversely, liking someone doesn't necessarily imply that we respect them. You're all looking over your shoulder now, going, hey, now I know you like me, but do you respect me? Last time in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, we looked at Peter's basic instructions for how to live a credible Christian life, to avoid the often voiced criticism against Christians that they are a bunch of hypocrites. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, Peter was saying we need to really live out our Christianity. We need to be people who can be respected. We need to imitate Jesus Christ. Well, today Peter is continuing on this same general theme of how we are to live a credible Christian life. And he'll now talk us through some of life's situations. So 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 13, he says, Submit yourselves to, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. In these verses, 13 through 17, Peter is giving us instructions on how to live as citizens. And here, in 13 and 14, the first word of verse 13 really establishes the central theme of this whole next chapter and a half of his letter, the word submit. Now, I know when I said the word submit, you all began to shudder. <laughs> it's a very unpopular word in our day. People don't like the idea of submitting. It communicates a violation of our personal rights, and we are all about protecting our personal rights in this country. In our minds, it's a humiliation to submit. It doesn't sit well with us to yield authority and power to someone over us. But that's what we're called to, as we'll see in this passage, as followers of Jesus. And here, we're to submit to and obey the authorities that are in place. That means we're to obey the laws of the society that we're living in, respecting the government, law enforcement, and such things. I think it's helpful for us to keep in mind the situation and the historical context that Peter was living in when he wrote these words. The supreme human authority in power at the time when Peter wrote this letter was Nero, the emperor of the Roman Empire. You might remember, Nero was one of the most godless, cruel, selfish, heartless, evil people who have ever ruled an empire. 
Nero was responsible for terrible persecutions of Christians, blaming them for terrible crimes, turning the whole society against them, torturing and killing them in all kinds of brutal and horrendous ways. Peter was living in the city of Rome when he wrote this letter. He suffered firsthand under the tyranny of Nero. In fact, he himself was martyred during these terrible persecutions by Nero. So, when Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, it carries the weight of his blood. Is this teaching about submitting to the governing authorities unique to Peter? No, it's not. We find the same teaching by the Apostle Paul. In fact, Peter and Paul's teachings on this subject are so similar that some Bible scholars have speculated that one of them must have been copying off the other one's paper. Flip over to Romans chapter 13, and we'll read what Paul writes here. Romans, Jeff, not 1 Corinthians. Romans. Romans 13, 1. He says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has, inst God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring judgment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Now, here's where it really gets rough for all of us. This is also why you pay taxes. Oh, no, did we have to read that part, Jeff? <laughs> this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Paul also writes in Titus 3.1, he says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. Everyone. The question's asked, well, are we to submit and obey under any and all circumstances? And the answer to that question is no. There are examples in the Bible and in general history when God's people disobeyed the governing authorities and were right to do so. Because those authorities were commanding them to do something that was in violation of God's greater law. An example, some examples from the scripture, uh, Exodus 1.15, when the midwives in Egypt refused to carry out Pharaoh's command to kill the Jewish baby boys that were born. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel chapter 3, who refused to bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold image. 
Peter, the same guy who wrote this letter that we're reading, and his partner John, when they were commanded by the Jewish authorities to not teach or preach about Jesus being the Christ in Acts chapter 4 and 5. Over in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, read a little bit of that story where it says, Then they, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, called them, Peter and John, in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot speak we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter and John, they went out, they continued to preach about Jesus in disobedience to those orders of the Jewish authorities. We skip to Acts 5.27, they're brought back in again. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. He says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. So there are and have been times when God's people have disobeyed the authorities. Now, although Peter refused to admit to the command of the Sanhedrin to not preach about Jesus, Let's remember, too, that he is also at the same time writing this letter, submitting himself to the ungodly authority of Nero, the emperor of Rome. Simply being under an authority that is sinful and ungodly is not an adequate justification for civil disobedience. There needs to be much more reason than that. Civil disobedience in the name of Christ is not something to be done without very prayerful and thoughtful consideration. There should be a clear and unavoidable conflict between God's commands and what the human authority is commanding us to do. And that's not always easy to determine. God's agenda can get mixed up with personal agendas too easily. Even very noble, righteous personal agendas are not always God's agenda. So I would caution all of us about civil disobedience. Now, under a democratic form of government, we can participate in the process of establishing and changing the laws of the land. For us, submitting to the human authorities over us means that we should submit to the authorities, but we can also work within the system to change things which we believe are unjust and wrong. Now, there is all kinds of stuff. We could, we could spend weeks trying to find our way through all of this spider web of civil disobedience and the legislation of morality and all of this stuff, and uh, we're not going to do that today. Verse 15. Hopefully I've just given you enough to confuse you a little bit today. And we're just, you know, moving forward with it. Verse 15, he says, For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 
Verse 15, Peter explains why we should submit to the authorities. We are to do it because it's God's will that we do it. He wants us to do it. It says, by doing good, which includes being good citizens, obeying the laws, showing proper respect to everyone, we, quote, should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. In other words, the critics of Christianity will not have legitimate reasons for their criticisms. This is the same point that Peter made in verse 12, which we looked at last time and which we read this morning already in the beginning. 1 Peter 12, 2.12 says, Live such good lives among unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. See, the quickest way of silencing the critic is not giving the critic anything legitimate to criticize us for. It's not yelling louder, posting a meme that is more offensive, one-upping the other guy, threatening God's judgment upon him. That's not the way we silence folks. We silence folks by living a good life. This doesn't mean that we won't face criticism. We have no control over that part, but we should work hard to ensure that the criticisms are without merit. Verse 16, he says, live as free people. The Christian is the freest person in the world. We've been set free from the bondage of sin and death. We've been set free from the old covenant religious system, which is based on performance to prove our worth to God. We've been set free from the systems of this world for finding fulfillment and identity and worth and purpose. But we live as God's slaves, meaning we submit ourselves to the authority of the Lord to serve Him. He's our master. He calls the shots for our life. And in verse 17, he says, show proper respect. He continues on here. He gives us four directives here, which sum up what he's been saying. And the first one is, show proper respect to everyone. As followers of Jesus, we're to show everyone a proper measure of respect in every area of life. Everyone in every area of life. And that includes social media. Christian, the Lord wants us to show proper respect to everyone, even those that we strongly disagree with in social media. There's no excuse for a Christian to ever be disrespectful or demeaning or belittling or to bully other people. Some of the behavior that I have witnessed by Christians on social media especially over the course of the last five years, is appalling. And it's embarrassing. I'm sure the Lord is not pleased with it. Some Christians... And I'm sure it's none of the people in this room 
Some Christians act like when it comes to social media that they can toss the fruit of the Holy Spirit right out of the window and turn into the righteous judging arm of the Lord. Do you remember what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the things that we should be exemplifying in our life in every context. We need to follow the advice from Thumper's mom in the movie Bambi. You remember that? If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. If you can't manage yourself on social media, then get off of it, seriously. Just get off of it then. You know, I read in the news the other day that Beth Moore has taken herself off of Twitter for the time being for this very reason. She said she didn't trust herself right now. She's afraid she might lose her temper and say something regretful. I have a lot of respect for someone like that. Good going, Beth Moore. More of us need to be like that. Second directive he gives us in this verse says, love the family of believers. The Greek word for love here is agape, which is the highest form of love. It's the kind of love that the Lord has shown us in Jesus. It's the kind of love that we are to show toward others, whether we feel it or not. Further, the kind of connection that we are to have with other believers is described here with the word family. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters. We need to care and protect each other. We are to love the followers of Jesus, the church, both the part of the church that we like and agree with, and the part of the church that we don't like, that we don't agree with, that we find annoying and frustrating and infuriating. Social media comes to mind again. Man, there's a lot of sinning that goes on in social media. Whew. And it's right out in front of everybody. That's what's so horrible about it. The third directive he gives us in this verse is fear God. Fear God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 14.27 The fear of the Lord is a foundation of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Yesterday, in the mandate teaching, Paul Tripp said, Fearlessness begins with fear of the Lord. In other words, fearing the Lord gives us courage to face all other fears. One commentator writes, Fear belongs only to God because God alone determines existence and non-existence. That's the essence of what Jesus taught in Matthew 10, 28, when he tells us to not fear those who can only kill our body. He said, instead, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body. See, God is both the most 
fearsome one in existence and also the one that we can trust above all others. Our ultimate allegiance is to be given to him over all others. The fourth directive that's given in verse 17 is honor the emperor, show proper respect to human authority, and we've talked about that. In verses 18 through 25, Peter gives instructions to believers who were slaves in the first century and how they were to live their lives. And before we get into this section of Scripture, I want to make a few remarks to help us, uh, you know, be able to really understand this from the context that we're, that we're living in today. First, there's absolutely no question that slavery is a gross injustice. Peter addressing slaves in his letter is not an endorsement by Peter of the practice of slavery. Instead, it's just the opposite. It was an important and compassionate acknowledgement of the significant numbers of people in the churches of that time who were slaves. This was the life situation of a large number of people. In the Greco-Roman culture in which Peter wrote his letter, slavery was universally accepted and considered a fundamental institution of civilized society. Historians estimate that more than half of the people, more than half of the people seen on the streets of the typical Roman city were slaves. Not all slaves were people who carried out menial tasks and difficult manual labor either. I mean, some of them were highly skilled professionals, serving as teachers and doctors and musicians and lawyers and chefs and scribes and business managers and craftsmen and such. It was a very different culture than ours in this regard, and it's a little difficult for us to imagine we need to be careful to not confuse the church of that day with the culture of that day. They were not the same. It's important, see, to point out that the New Testament writers, like Peter and Paul, addressing slaves as a people group in their letters, like we see here, had an effect of actually elevating the status of these people who were slaves, making them equals with the other people in the church. They were treated as human beings with the same worth and dignity as the others. Some question why the New Testament writers didn't condemn slavery and determine or and, uh, demand that it be eliminated. That's a completely unrealistic expectation to place on these New Testament writers, ignoring the reality of the time and culture that they were living in. The Christians of the first century were not in a position to eliminate slavery. They were a very small minority among the populace, often distrusted and abused themselves by the rest of the people. They had no political power. They had no voice in society. They were objects of persecution themselves. Within their own communities of faith, though, the Christians did carry out the heart of Jesus as best as they could within the confines of their culture, they raised the status of the people who were slaves within their 
church communities to the same status as the other folks. Slaves were seen as brothers and sisters in Christ. Slaves had positions of responsibility within the church. These were huge differences between the society at large and what was going on inside of the church. Colossians 3.11, Paul writes, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. The here that Paul's referring to is the kingdom of God, the community of Christ followers, the church. So he says in the church, in the community of Christ followers, in the kingdom of God, there's no distinction between peoples. They're all God's children, chosen, holy, dearly loved, as he says in verse 12 of that chapter. Whether they are Gentiles or Jews, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarians or Scythians, slave, free, it doesn't matter. Don't miss the last thing that Paul says in that verse too. It's significant. He says Christ is in all. Christ dwells in the slave as much as in the free person. He indwells the Gentile as much as he does the Jew. He indwells the barbarian as much as the civilized person. All human beings. So the principles that Peter lays out for first century slaves has application for us, though, as employees and when we are in other positions with authority over us. In verse 18, he writes, Slaves, and some of you feel like that's you as an employee, and I, I, I question that your employment is quite so severe as that. But says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. We see that submission and the showing of respect to be big themes here, similar to what we've already noted in the previous passage about being a citizen in society. Submission and respect. Our obligation for submission and respect extends not only to those that we think deserve it, but to any who hold a position of authority over us. He says, not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh, overbearing, unjust, unreasonable, unfair. Some of your bosses are coming to mind, I'm sure. There are obvious limits to this in our time and culture compared to the times in which Peter lived. Employees have protections under the law that were not present in those days. The general principle holds, though, that as a follower of Jesus, we should be good employees, doing a good job, respecting our supervisors, cooperating with others, working hard, adding value to the team. We should be good examples, serving even under a difficult supervisor. 
Now, verse 20, I would say, obviously, in our time and culture, no one is expecting us to submit to a beating in the workplace for any reason. The principle, though, is that it's not commendable in the eyes of the Lord to suffer for something that we deserve to be punished for. Maybe that punishment in our day would come in the form of, uh, you know, being given leave, being fired, being laid off, um, a dock in pay. I mean, I, I don't know what it might be, but, you know, there are various ways that uh, we can suffer punishment. And when we have deserved it, we've got nothing to complain about. We got what we deserved. It's commendable in the eyes of God when we suffer unjustly for doing good and having a humble Christ-honoring attitude through it. It's, it's God-glorifying when we put our commitment to God above personal comfort and ego. That's what Jesus did in an extreme way. And Peter now will present Jesus as our example to follow. Jesus is our example in all things, isn't he? For how we live as a citizen as an employee, as a spouse, as a parent, as a child, as a leader, as a follower, as a friend, as a neighbor, in all areas of our life, he's our standard, the one that we follow. So in verse 21, he says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 22 is a quotation from Isaiah 53, 9. But Jesus, he suffered tremendous injustice in his life. He was guilty of nothing. He had done nothing wrong. He had committed no sin. He didn't deserve the treatment that he received. He was unjustly killed. When you are facing mistreatment and, and injustice, I want you to remember your Lord Jesus. You're not alone. He knows what you're feeling. He gets it. When no one else does. He was steamrolled and beat down and kicked to the curb and treated like garbage and blamed for all the troubles. And he didn't deserve any of it. How did Jesus respond to this ill treatment he received? Let's look at the next verse, 23. It says, when they hurled or insulted him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It says he didn't retaliate. He didn't make any threats. He was silent before his accusers. Instead, he entrusted himself to God the Father to take care of things. You know, when, when we read the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek and loving our enemies, I think we forget that's what he did. He lived that way. He followed his own teachings. He turned the other cheek. And he loved his enemies. Matthew 5, 38, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. That's what Jesus did. Verse 43 of that same chapter, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's what Jesus did. It sounds crazy. But we're told to follow Jesus' example in how we respond to ill treatment. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Paul writes this. He says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Verse 24. Still talking about Jesus, it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's as if Peter is writing about this example that Jesus is, has set for us in suffering unjustly. And he gets caught up in worship. And then he writes this beautiful riff about the substitutionary death of Jesus for us. These two verses, they capture the gospel message beautifully. Before coming to Jesus Christ, we are all like a sheep who's gone astray. We're lost and wandering, looking for meaning uh, and purpose for life. We, we live our life by our own rules and ignore God. We're empty and we're hungry. Jesus, He came as a perfect, spotless lamb of God who, who has died in our place. He substituted Himself for us, taking our sin upon Himself, taking upon Himself the punishment and the judgment that was supposed to be ours. And by Him doing that, We've been given His perfect righteousness in exchange. We've been healed by His wounds. Through His sacrificial death, we have died to sin with Him and been given a new life like His. We've been brought back into relationship with God. And Jesus Christ is now the shepherd and overseer, the guardian, the protector, the caretaker of our soul. We each personally need to accept that substitutionary death of Jesus as our own. It's not enough for us to simply know that it happened, that it was something that took place. We need to reach out and take hold of it as ours, asking the Lord to come into our life. And if you haven't done that today, yet I, I want to encourage you to do that. And it's you know, there, there's not some magic formula for it. it. It's an acknowledgement on your part of going, yes, I believe it. And I want that. 
I want the Lord to come into my life and I want him to change me. I want him to be my shepherd and my overseer. I want this new life. I'm lost and I, I want him to find me and show me the way to go. I want my future to be in his hands rather than mine. If that's what you want, tell him and it'll be yours. Let's bow our heads in closing. Father, we want to thank you for your uh, word and Lord, some of the stuff in this passage that we've looked at today raised about as many questions as it answered for us in some ways. Lord, I pray for all of us that our heart is that we want to be submissive to you, Lord, and we want to follow you. We want to trust you, Lord. We thank you that you are the one that we can entrust ourselves to. Pray that you touch each of us today, Lord, and that I pray that we would we would be people that are respectful and can be respected because we are really following Jesus. I pray you make that so in us, Lord, in his name. Amen.